I'm going to share one of my favorite stories from the the uh, the annals of football mythology. Um, the the does anybody know the name of the trophy that was hoisted by Patrick Mahomes and Andy Reid last Sunday? What's it called? The the Lombardi Trophy, the Vince Lombardi Trophy. Why is it called the Vince Lombardi Trophy? Because there's a guy named Vince Lombardi that it's named after. Thank you, Carol. Thank you, Carol. Carol's a hockey person. No, um, I, okay, yeah. Um, so Vince Lombardi is considered to be historically just like one of the best coaches ever, okay? Um, for the Green Bay Packers, way, way back in the day, first, first few Super Bowls, quarterback Bart Starr was kind of his star. Haha, <laughs> you see what I did there? Quarterback. Um, but... Back when he was just a, a player and part of an organization, um, back in the 1920s, University of Michigan um, played their worst game ever, got just absolutely destroyed by Notre Dame. And the team spent the entire train ride from Terre Haute, Indiana, back to Ann Arbor, Michigan, in just complete silence, waiting to just be ripped on for how poorly they played. They got back to the clubhouse. They Nothing was said. They were just told to show up at 7 a.m. the following morning, and they were dismissed. And so the story goes, the next morning, they're all assembled, and their coach, whose name was Harris Hurry Up Yost, which I'm assuming his name was Hurry Up because that's what he kept saying, along with other interspersed words that I can't repeat in a sermon, um, to them regularly. He walks in. And he holds up a football and he says, gentlemen, this is a football. We're just going to start there. And he started from the ground up. That was so so impactful for Lombardi as a player that later on when he he became a coach, he's coming in, he walks in at the beginning of every season, regardless of how the team did. He would walk in at the beginning of the season, sit down with these professional football players and say, gentlemen... This is a football. We're going to start here. Okay. When you hear the words in Isaiah 58, and, and I don't know, maybe you're not, okay, sorry, maybe you're not a sports person, and maybe that analogy just doesn't resonate for you, okay? So, short story, do you hear, did you hear the one about the woman who finally, you know, had been just finally unearthing relics in her house and found her grandmother, her great-grandmother's award-winning recipe for rabbits, too? And when she looked at it, the first part of the recipe, step one, catch a rabbit, okay? Which seems kind of like a duh thing, but it's really important, very important. Now, for Isaiah to say what he says to the children of Israel that are coming back from the exile, who have been spending the last decades trying to maintain their identity while they've been in Babylon. For him to come up and say, Israelites, this is what fasting looks like, is kind of the same thing as a coach coming up to a whole bunch of professional football players and saying, this is a football. It kind of, it kind of takes you by surprise, and it's supposed to. It's supposed to take Israel by surprise because they don't understand why what they're doing is not working. 
They're like, we're, we're observing the fasting. We're doing all the things. We're, we're, we're praying. We are humbling ourselves. Like we've gone back and we've looked, at the, we've looked at the instructions in Leviticus. And we've looked at the instructions from Moses. And, and we, why aren't you listening to us, God? Why aren't you hearing our prayers? And God almost turns it back on him and says, why aren't you hearing my prayer for you. Because my prayer for you is not that you would become experts in religious observance. My prayer is that you would act like my children who love me and love my other children. You've gotten so caught up in the details that you forgot the basics of why we're doing what we're doing. And so he kind of basically says, this is a fast This is what depriving yourself of things for my sake looks like. It's not so everybody can look at you and go, wow, that's a great observer of the law. You deprive yourself so that you can be lavish and generous to others. You hold back on what you want so that you can love others the way that I love you. You stoop down for them the way that I've stooped down for you. And so he comes back again and says, let's get back to the basics. Let's get back to the basics. When I look at Matthew chapter 5, it is almost like Jesus has this same key idea as well. If we are going to be great in the kingdom of heaven, we are going to have to keep coming back to the basics of remembering who and what we are about so that we know how to live as citizens of the kingdom And so the beginning of his proclamation about the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 5 that we looked at last week starts by outlining the basic identity of its citizens. We talked last week about how he calls us blessed, calls us to a new understanding of what being blessed means. He follows now with two really powerful object lessons about our identity, salt and light. Now, Salt and light are precious commodities today, but I think sometimes they lose a little bit of their, their power for us because we live in a modern society where we can flip on a light switch. We have electricity and we can get light like that. It's precious, but it's easily accessible. Or we have modern refrigeration. And so if you need a piece of meat, you just go to the freezer section and you get it out and you take it home and you put it in your freezer and then you thaw it out and then it's just it's good to go. And so even though they're precious to us, maybe we don't understand it quite as well. So precious commodities today, what are they? What is a precious commodity today? Wi-Fi. 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 Yes. Yeah. What is the first question you ask when you go into a coffee shop? Well, okay, so maybe another precious commodity being coffee. After, after where is the coffee is, what's the password for the Wi-Fi? And it's always something like, Java is awesome, all lowercase, one word, you know, or something. I don't know. But, I mean, like, immediately, you know, and when you're not connected, you're like, ah. I was over, I was in Portland a couple weeks ago, and my entire ability to communicate with my family, my ability to get things done, all of that was based on whether I had access to Wi-Fi or not, especially when you're out in Yamhill, Oregon, which is next to nowhere, okay? 
It's not the end of the world, but you can see it from there. It really is. Okay? So, yeah, okay, Wi-Fi, I, I will say coffee this morning. Th- by the way, JR, thank you. I love you. <laughs> Class almost didn't happen this morning because I went out and people saw me slump like three inches because I was like, there's no coffee yet. Oh, how am I going to teach? And JR saved me. So, thank you. Um, but, like, you know, clean air, purified water. I mean, th- for most of the world, I mean, those are, I mean, and, and again, we take those things for granted here. We very much take those things for granted. Most of the world doesn't take those things for granted. It's hard for us to grasp just how precious salt is in a world with modern refrigeration. It's hard for us to grasp how, how, how necessary it was. Salt was enriching. Salt was preserving. Salt was transforming. Yeah, it was flavor and it was seasoning, but it was so much more. It, 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 it was the only real way that you could protect something from spoil or rot. And even enriching the soil, okay, so that you could grow crops. When Jesus says, if salt loses its saltiness, it's not good for the manure pile, he's not just making, he's not just, like, he's not just making a joke there, okay? I mean... He's saying, like, literally, you would take fer- you would take manure and you would take salt and you would mix them together and you get fertilizer and that's how you get your crops to grow. Now, as Christians, that's just a great image for you and me. Just think about that for a second. Sometimes being the salt of the earth is not a very glamorous job. Sometimes it means getting down in the poo. And I'm really not joking about that, okay? It is not an easy life. It is not a glamorous life, but it is an enriching life. And the things that we are called to do for Jesus, we are doing in ways that are going to produce things that we will not see. I'm looking at, I'm looking at Jeremy when I'm talking about, you know, getting down in it and enriching. Yes, absolutely. Right? <laughs> yeah. This sermon's for you. Um, yeah, I, but but those are those are the the earthy and necessary and 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 life changing things that salt does. And Jesus looks at you and me and says, "That's who you are." And then he follows it up, and, and oh, and 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 he follows it up with this statement. How can, you know, if salt loses its saltiness, it's not good for anything. And we're like, how does salt lose its saltiness? Because we live in a world of pure salt. We live in a world where we can actually do that. Most of the salt of the day was, in the ancient world, it wasn't pure. It was mixed in with other stuff. And in that kind of state, the sodium chloride in a mixed state is going to, it'll, it'll dissipate in humid weather. And salt can become tasteless. Now, it would still do its job, but it wouldn't do its job as well. And eventually, if it was left alone long enough, it wouldn't do anything anymore. Salt becomes tasteless when it's not used or when it's used sparingly. Our identity as Christians is defined by our peculiarity and our usefulness. And I want to be careful when I say that, okay? Because it is not as though God is saying... Yeah, I'll love you just as much if you're my stupid kid that doesn't do anything. That is not what God is saying. Okay? And God is definitely not saying, be useful or you're not my child. 
That is not what he's saying either. What Jesus is definitely saying is, this is who I've created you to be. This is the identity that I've given you. Live out of it. Embrace it. Go after it to the fullness. Don't don't just go at this thing halfway. Live. Live. If we don't embrace those understandings that we're spe- if we're spending all of our time trying to keep from being too peculiar, which we do, or if we think that being a disciple is huddling together in the salt jar of Sunday service all the time, we lose what it means to be who we are. And, and the preacher is no exception, okay? Like, I, confession time. If it's no big deal for me to stand in front of a group of people who believe the same things as I do and talk about Jesus, but I can't go out and talk to somebody at a coffee shop or I can't talk to my neighbor across the street or I can't talk to my barber or my barista or whoever it is about the gospel of Jesus, I need to ask myself some hard questions about how passionate I really am about the kingdom of God, don't I? So, I mean, don't hear me standing up protected by the pulpit saying, like, you need to go do this stuff, okay? Like, I, Jesus' words to me are like, Travis, you're not really salt if all you're doing is just hanging out in the salt jar all the time. If this is where your best words are, you're not really doing what I asked you to do. And I have to grapple with that every single week, is that my best sermons need to be out there, not in here. And that's something that we all have to grapple with. Now, light's the same way. Jesus says you're the light of the world. No one hides a lamp, no one takes a lamp and then puts a bowl over it. To place a lamp under a bowl is just as self-defeating as keeping salt huddled up in the jar. Any kind of function that's that it's going to have is limited. But what happens when you cover a light, a light source that is flame? What does it do? It goes out. Why does it go out? Because there's no oxygen. If we believe that being like Jesus means removing ourselves from every situation that, 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 that is difficult for us or causes us discomfort... If, if we believe that hemming ourselves in and removing ourselves from the world is what God is calling us to when we say holiness, holiness is what I long for, holiness, holiness is what I need, holiness is what you want from me, so take my life and remove it, you know, take my will and, and, and you know, cut it off from the rest of everyone else, right? We will suffocate and strangulate our faith. That, that, that is what we will do. We will sputter along through life. That is not what Jesus is calling us to. And then he follows it up with this. You are a city on a hill. You cannot be hidden. There is a visible, conspicuous nature to the disciple of Jesus that needs to be embraced. Okay? And Jesus follows up with this statement 
afterward, that he hasn't come to teach or enact anything that's going to corrupt or conflict with the life that God's people have already been called to in the teachings of Moses and Sinai and at the prophets. And this is why I see such a great connection between what Jesus is talking about here with salt and light and what Isaiah was talking about back in Isaiah chapter 58. Listen again to the words of Isaiah and and then hear them in the lips of Jesus as he's saying, you are salt, you are light, this is who you are. Listen. Is this not the kind of religious observance, fasting, that I have chosen, starting in verse 6 of Isaiah 58? To loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, to break every yoke. Is it not for you to share your food with the hungry, to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? We say poor wanderer, but I really, really like the, the, the one that says homeless, the one who has no home, to bring them home, physically, spiritually, in every sense of the word. We're a church that's, I mean, if you look at the tagline on our bulletin, it says, Shelburne Street Church of Christ, a place to call home. Spiritually, we're providing that. How else are we providing that? I know that we're doing things. We work with Sanctuary Youth Center downtown. It's the only drop-in center for youth between the hours of 4 and 9 o'clock, okay? When they don't have a shelter and they don't have a place to go, and they're between the ages of 14 and 24, Sanctuary is the only place that they can go. I know that we help out with them. I know we can do more. Is it not to share your food with the hungry? Shelburne Community Kitchens, right up the street from us. That was the thing I was talking about last week where we were making, where the youth were getting together and they were making those birthday cake packs for people who don't have enough money to afford everything that it needs in order to celebrate your kid's birthday. They can just hand them out. Cakes, party favors, whole shebang, one box. It's really cool. And so it's not that I'm not, I'm not railing on us from the pulpit saying, and we're not doing any of that. It's just, it's like, yeah, we are, but like, let's live even more into that because there's a joy and there is a passion and, and there, is a, there is a sense of satisfaction that comes when we're in that sweet spot where we're being who we're created to be. When you see the naked, to clothe them, to not turn away from your own flesh and blood. And that, that I think, is significant. Because if we're children of God, then flesh and blood takes on such different meaning. It is not about what your last name is or, or what your 23andMe says that you're all made up of. How your particular alignment of chromosomes makes you like this person or not as much like that person. If we're children of God, this goes beyond any sort of race or ethnicity or boundary of gender or background or anything, anything. Being a child of God trumps everything. To not turn away from your own flesh and blood, no matter how much it seems that they are not like you. They actually are like you because they, like you, are a precious child of God. And so everything that Jesus is saying is not only not contradicting that. He's not saying, you know, what what they talked about in the law about religious observance doesn't matter anymore. What they talked about in the prophets about social justice doesn't matter matter anymore. Because now you have me and now I'm what can save you. And so now focus on your personal salvation and getting people saved. And that's all you need to worry about. 
He's like, no, 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 no. I have come to give you the abundant, full life. I've come to actually make it possible for you to live this way, empowered by my Holy Spirit in a way that you never could be before. That's the beauty of the gospel that Jesus is bringing. Is that you and I don't have to work to be salt and light anymore. Jesus has already given us everything that we need in order to be salt and light before he even asks us to do any of this crazy stuff. He's already, he's already poured it all out. Right? That's what Paul would say in, in, in Ephesians. He's given us all of the riches. He's poured out all of the riches of heaven and all of the riches of his power on you and I so that we can do all this crazy stuff that he's called us to do. If I'm going to follow it up, if I'm, if I'm really going to nail what this idea of being salt and light looks like for us now, though, I, I look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul comes, Paul, when Paul comes and, 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 and spends time with the Corinthian church, he's just gotten finished being in Athens. And if we, if we remember our book of Acts, in Athens he really he pulls out all the stops he, he reads up on his Plato and his Aristotle. He, 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 you know, he crams for the exam. And he gets out there, and when he gets his shot at the Areopagus, he gives the tightest classical Greek speech you have ever seen a disciple give. It is really good. The language is great. The rhetoric is perfect. Everything is fantastic. Right up into the point where he says that God raises Jesus from the dead. And it is so offensive to their sensibilities that they're like, what an idiot. Yeah, you had me going until you started talking about that resurrection of the dead stuff. Whatever. You know, and a few kind people kind of come up after the speech, after his TED talk and go like, we might like to hear you more on this sometime, maybe. It's a good job, you know. And can you imagine, like, just, just trying your best to give the best speech ever, the most compelling argument for Jesus ever, and everybody just kind of, whatever. Paul deals with his failure in a very interesting way. Rather than going, okay, so resurrection of Jesus from the dead, we are going to scratch that out of the next sermon. Okay, like we're not, we're going we're to minimize that. Paul says something else. He says, you know what? I resolved when I came to you, I was not going to come with eloquent words. I was not going to come with big speeches. I was not going to come with everything all tightened up and cleaned up and everything. I resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And if he says him crucified, you and I know very well that Paul cannot separate the cross from the grave, ever. They do not make sense without one another. Paul says, if, I mean, later in the letter, Paul says, like, if, if Christ is not risen from the dead, then we are to be pitied above anyone else. Okay? He dives further into the foolishness of Christ and him crucified. 
I think that's so incredible. He advocates going a different direction than you and I want to do. We want to clean Christianity up. We want to make it look safe. We want to make it look palatable. We want to make it look attractive. Christ and him crucified is none of those things. Christ crucified is the exact opposite of those things. It is not attractive. It is not safe. It is not beautiful unless you have eyes to see. It is powerful. It is purposeful. It is the wisdom of God that looks like foolishness to everybody around us. And then Paul says, but to those of us who believe it is the life. As in singular, the only life. We can spend our time worrying about the newest trend or what's the most relevant model or what's the hot new worship song. And, and don't get me wrong, I am constantly thinking about ways for us to operate better as a family of God. Ways for us to, to, to speak the gospel in a new way that matters to people, both inside and outside of the church. And I love our worship, and I love the fact that we are, we are keeping the old and also introducing the new and holding those things in tension. Okay, I'm not saying that those things are bad. Here is what I'm saying. Those things can always carry a congregation of believers for a while, but the only thing that's going to make us truly full of life and vibrant is devotion to the crucified and resurrected Jesus. That is the only thing that actually gives a church or a person life. The devotion to laying ourselves down for the things that he laid himself down for. The devotion to surrendering to the power of God the way that he did. Interesting, those are the same things that Isaiah is urging Israel to be about. I would also be remiss if I didn't say that we can't do that alone. We look at this idea of of being salt and light, and and I don't know, maybe you get a sense of powerlessness at times. You're like, "What, what can I do against such grave problems in the world? I mean, you're, t- you're talking about me wanting to be salt. and li- Have you looked at CNN or Fox News or your, your network of choice, you know, this week? I mean, it's like everybody around us is like, how did it get so hot around me and what am I doing in this handbasket? Like, like, no, the wheels seem to be coming off around us more than ever before. And it leads to this sense of powerlessness that leads to a sense of anxiety, that leads to a sense of fear. That, you know, and you can see where all that's going. Do you wonder why people are so afraid? Do you wonder why there's an increase in mental illness? Do you wonder why that's happening more and more and more? I think it's because we are, we are being fed 
that sense of powerlessness more and more. I'm not saying that's the only reason, but I think it's a reason. God made us very complex people. And I think when we feel powerless, it does something to our souls. I'll say it again. To be Christ and to be him crucified is also to surrender ourselves to the power that raised him from the dead. Church, you are anything but powerless. You have been given the power in your life that has raised Jesus from the dead. And so, the sin in areas of growth that you say, I, I, I strive against this day after day after day after day, and I just don't see it getting any better. Do not believe the lie that you are powerless. Jesus is at work in you. I used to, I, I used to remember a song that I sang in, in Sunday school when I was probably about Quinn's age. Okay, does anybody know the song, He's Still Working On Me? Is this a lost song? He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. It took him just a week to make the moon and the stars, literal seventh-day creation, I know. The sun and the earth and Jupiter and Mars. But how loving and how patient he must be because he's still working on me. It's not a sign of powerlessness. It's a sign of patience, and it's a sign of love, and it's a sign that God hadn't given up on us yet. Do we believe that God is still loving and patient? Do we still believe that he hasn't given up on us individually? Do we still believe that he hasn't given up on our world yet? Then let us not give in to the lie that we are powerless. Let us not also give in to the lie that we're called to do this by ourselves. We are combined together in the unity of Christ as his church. Both all of us that are here and the greater church of Victoria and the greater global church around the world. And that is a truly powerful thing. And, this, and I think this is a problem. That this idea of, of, of the privatization of faith and morality makes us miss the point where I think that this is all about me and my individual belief and me and my individual struggle and me and my individual faith. A single grain of salt will not do much. But you put them all together and look at what it does in like the Great Salt Lake. Or the Dead Sea. You know, you you literally almost can't dive into. You can't, you almost cannot forcibly sink yourself in either of those bodies of water. There is a buoyancy that comes, right? There is a lifting up and a raising up that comes when we all get together. A single flame may not be able to do much. But I've seen our candlelight services when the fire starts to spread. And how it lights up the dark room. And I think that one way our righteousness needs to exceed the Pharisees, as Jesus says, which is a very challenging statement. Okay? Because these guys know their law. And they know their prophets so well. And you'd think as, a, as an average person, 
you know, Jesus saying, well, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you can't enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well, okay, what point, what hope do I have? We place our righteousness in Jesus rather than our righteousness in being right. What is it that actually makes you righteous? Is it that you're right about everything? Or is it that Jesus has made you righteous? Where's the power actually coming from? Where's the direction actually coming from? Who are you actually surrendering to? In fact, we may need to come to the realization that there are way more important things in this world than being right. I think maybe a lot of the problems we're experiencing in the world right now have come because everybody thinks the most important thing is being right. Rather than being surrendered to the love of Jesus Christ. Maybe the most right thing that we can do sometimes is to crucify our rightness in order to embrace other people. Even those, especially those, who are antagonistic toward us because of what we believe. People get mad at us, we get mad right back and say, well, I'm right though, Jesus told me so. Well, where's the conversation going to go from there? Rather than when somebody becomes antagonist towards you, you reach out toward them and say, tell me more. Tell me more. Or, I'm sorry that that happened to you. Or, I want to be your friend. How can I do that? Those may be some of the most powerful things that we can do to crucify our rightness on the altar of righteousness. And if you think that sounds new age or pluralistic or whatever, like, read your Bible. Consider how Jesus was revealed to us. He became God with us. He did not use his righteousness as an excuse to remove himself from failure or pain or suffering or opposition or misunderstanding or any of those things. He waded right into the middle of people. People who didn't know him, people who didn't get him, people who wouldn't listen to him, people who wanted to hurt him, people who eventually killed him. He crucified his rightness every day in order to draw near. And that may be the most powerful thing that you and I can do in our world. Isaiah calls this out. Jesus calls us out. This new identity of those who will be salt and light. He says, you will be called repairers of the breaches. Those places where the walls have broken down. You'll be the one that makes them strong. And I'm not talking walls that divide. I'm talking walls that are like the walls in the New Jerusalem. Remember in our study from Revelation where the gates are huge and people can just stream in. There are no barriers anymore to people coming to God. The restorers of streets to live in. There are breaches all around us. There are systems that are devaluing the lives of other people's. There are economic structures that we routinely, probably unwittingly, are complicit in that amass many things for our consumption at the expense of many other people. 
the majority of the world. There are systems that are running counter to our call to steward creation well, that are destroying someday for the convenience of now. What breaches are you being called to mend as a citizen of the kingdom? That's what it looks like to be salt and light. What home are you creating for the exiles that are coming home to their heavenly father? That's what it means to be salt and light. And so my encouragement to you as we wrap up and as we move back to respond in worship and respond at the table as Jesus offers himself to us again as bread, as cup. Let's get back to the basics again, church. We are God's people. We are salt. We are light. Be blessed in knowing who you are and what you're about. Amen? Amen.